You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator, and it's your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Art Taylor. And today is, uh, we're heading toward the end of Pride Month. And so I wanted to especially acknowledge and discuss an organization and an individual in that organization who works to assure that all of the friends and family that we have in the Florida, in this particular case, they work out of Florida, um, individuals who are gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer have equal rights. And this is a civil rights organization. We're talking about Equality Florida. And I want to talk today with Brandon Wolf about the work going on there, the progress we've made, and the challenges still ahead. Brandon, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Brandon, uh, first, if I could, a little bit about you. And, you know, this podcast is all about inspiring people to consider being generous, to engage in causes that matter most to them. We try to use our guests as examples for others so that they might emulate and follow in your footsteps in a way that works for them. So what I'd like to know is how did you get so connected to social good? And in this particular case, the Equality Florida organization. Well, I appreciate that. And, and thank you for your work to keep the focus on on communities that desperately need our support and at the same time to inspire people to be engaged in their communities. This is not the work that I imagined myself doing. In fact, six years ago, I wasn't even close to doing anything like this. I was working at Starbucks in management, and I also had a, a little slice of normalcy, I think, for the first time in my life. When I was a kid, it was a, a political climate not all that dissimilar from what we're experiencing right now. There was a, a debate when I was in high school in, in 2004 about you know, same-sex marriage across the country. There was an effort to ban it by constitutional amendment. In fact, my home state of Oregon was one that did ban same-sex marriage by constitutional amendment. And so for much of that childhood, I struggled to, to find a place to belong. I struggled to believe that I I could find belonging in this world and people that I care deeply about, people that I think did care deeply about me would often say that the world was never going to be ready for someone like me, that I was always going to have to tone it down or or tame some parts of myself to, to fit into society's idea of normal. And 
So that drove me to do a lot of things. It, it drove me in 2008 to, to leave my home state of Oregon, pack two suitcases and move to Orlando, Florida. It, it drove me to try new things for the first time, meet new people for the first time. And in Florida, I did find that that new community, that sense of belonging. I found a world that looked like me for the first time. I found a world that that loved like me for the first time. Um, I found belonging in, in safe spaces for LGBTQ people. I found belonging in, in chosen family. I met my best friend, Drew, in 2014, and, and he was among the first people I'd ever met that was out and proud as a queer person of color. And he really inspired me to, to fall in love with who I am and to understand that the world, while it may, have not, may not have been ready in the beginning for someone like me, it was going to have to get ready because, you know, the world desperately needed my my authentic self. And so I, I say that I wasn't engaged really, you know, with Equality Florida or in advocating for my community because I, I felt like when you had stolen this little sliver of normalcy that people told you the world was never going to be ready to offer someone like you, you just held on to it for dear life. That that was that was adulthood. You ride that off into retirement. And then, you know, six years ago in June on a on a summer evening, not not a lot different from the ones we're having right now. I went to a safe space. I went to Pulse Nightclub with my best friends, Drew, and his partner, Juan. And everything about it was normal. It was our usual spot. It was the same bartenders serving the same drinks we always ordered. It was the same space on the patio where we always stood and, and told you know, silly inside jokes. And then in an instant, the most normal night of my life in one of the safest places I knew became the extraordinary tragedy that that folks have have come to you know know Orlando for in the early hours of June twelfth of twenty sixteen, I was washing my hands at a bathroom sink when a gunman went through the front door of Pulse nightclub and opened fire. He, by the time he was done, had fired over one hundred and ten rounds into the dark club. He murdered forty nine mostly LGBTQ people of color. He shattered our safe space, and ultimately, my best friends. Uh, were were two of those 49 victims. One died in an ambulance on the way to the hospital and the other never made it off the dance floor. I was really, really lucky to survive that night, but it fundamentally changed the way that I see my obligation to be a part of this community. I got uh, linked up with Equality Florida for the first time. They were going to bat for us to make sure we had the resources we needed. I, I wanted to pay it back. And so I began volunteering with them. And then in 2019, I just couldn't stand on the sideline anymore. I was watching this backlash grow against LGBTQ people. I was seeing people in need of support. And, and so I had a conversation with Nadine Smith, our executive director, and, and she brought me on full time. Uh, and now I get to do work that I'm really passionate about. I get to give back to a community that has given so much to me. Uh, and hopefully I get to fight for a world that my best friends would be proud to be a part of. Oh, my, 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 my. Um... You know, we've had a lot of shows, um, Brandon, and I got to tell you, that story is uh, is just one of the hardest to swallow. It is personally difficult. I'll, I'll put it that way. And, I'm, and I know it must have been and still is uh, a horror for you to have mm -hmm. to remember and, as you just did, recount. So I want to acknowledge that and just say that I'll be thinking about you uh, every time now that I think of Pride Month. Thank you. And, you know, we've 
we have these shootings pretty regularly in this country. Mm. That one was certainly one of the most heinous and frightening and difficult as they all are to process. Yeah. And so I want to hold that up and just uh, say to you, I'm sorry for what happened to you and particularly your friends and their families and all the others who were affected by that horrible situation. But you know, you did something. You didn't simply uh, retreat. Um, You decided that this could be a signal for you to change your work and your career and to work on behalf of others so that this might never happen again and that people might see the community differently. And so I want to uh, commend you for that. And I hope that in this work, you found some modicum of joy, even though you're working on a very tough issue one that constantly needs attention and more people to understand. I'll just give you one example. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple of weekends ago, I had a family member here who is a really good man. I'll put it to you that way. Older fellow. He's a religious leader, a small, and he runs a small church. And from time to time, we'll talk about scripture and so forth. And he had to mention that he saw homosexuality as not only a sin, but an abomination. Mm. And, you know, I'm stunned because, you know, we had had so many good moments, you know, really wonderful moments where we were spiritually connected. Mm -hmm. And then this comes up and I am just want to try to figure out of all things in the world, it seems to me we should want loving relationships more than anything else mm-hmm. in this time. And yet, even though Jesus says, love your neighbor, this individual chooses to see homosexuality as something that shouldn't be loved. It's kind of an abomination. And I was just stunned. And, you know, yet we have to have these conversations. You know, we have to have these conversations with family members and friends. And yet there doesn't seem in many cases to be the kind of path forward that we'd like to see. Yeah. Yet you're working on this every day. Tell me how people like me deal with that kind of thing. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story because I think it's really, you know, it's it's real for those of us in the community. It's it's real every day. It's real for our allies and it's real for our society. Part of I think what has been so successful about the LGBTQ civil rights movement and and make no mistake, although we're watching backlash on, you know, almost an unprecedented scale right now, we have made a lot of progress. Uh, we secured marriage equality in 2015. We secured non-discrimination protections in 2020, and public sentiment has largely shifted in favor of equality. If you look at polling, even in the state of Florida, it's something like 66 or 67 percent of Floridians, uh, and that goes you know, across the political spectrum, believe that LGBTQ people should be protected from discrimination. So I think there's, there's two things that I can share with folks who are, are grappling. The first one is that while we 
have conversations with people that we care about, people that we love about acceptance and inclusion and love, we are also having a policy conversation about whether or not the government should be allowing discrimination against people. And so it's possible for people to hold this deep set of beliefs about who they are, who their God is, uh, and their relationship to the LGBTQ community, and at the same time, agree that the government should not be sanctioning discrimination against LGBTQ people. I think that's the first place we can start, is this this genuine agreement that it is not the government's place to greenlight discrimination against anyone. And we should look to society, we should look to each other to create spaces where we can live in harmony with one another, even if we don't agree. And then I think the second thing is when we're having those personal conversations, I think about you know, my dad, as an example, my dad is a, a deeply religious person who's extremely socially conservative. He and I do not agree on on nearly anything. But part of his journey has been to get to know me, the, the whole me, not the me that put on a mask in a metaphorical way at the dinner table as a kid, but the me who is comfortable being myself around my friends and holding hands with someone that I love in public. And it's it's a difficult journey for him. I see that that's difficult for him, but he's been willing to make it because he loves me. And we have made a lot of progress together. So I say all of that because, first of all, I want to encourage people to continue to have those conversations. The moments that you engage in, that, that one that you just described, they may, they may feel frustrating up front. They may feel deflating in the moment, but they're an opportunity. Right. They're an opportunity to go on a journey with someone. They're an opportunity to welcome someone to make progress with you. Um, and the second thing that I would just highlight is, is that word progress. We don't get to claim to be purveyors of progress if we don't allow people space to make progress. We can't have these, in my view, purity tests around whether or not someone has always been an ally to our community, but rather we have to invite people constantly to open their minds, to open their hearts to us, to learn something new about someone else in the hopes that we build allies along the way. It sounds like, well, again, that conversation that you had was incredibly frustrating and probably deeply deflating. It sounds like there there may be an opportunity for progress there. It won't come tomorrow. It won't come maybe next month or next year. Who knows when it comes? But But there are moments for us to introduce people to the humanity of others to show them grace and goodwill in the hope that that along the way we can help to open their hearts and minds to being more inclusive to others. Well, thank you for that, because as you said, I'm sure I'm not the only one who finds themselves in these conversations. And a lot of times I know people will just not say anything. People will go on about the character of individuals or, or aspects of people and nothing will get said. But it's difficult for me to not say anything. Hmm. And and, so. and we do we do need that courage, right, yeah. from our allies. I will say when I talk about making progress, I also have to underscore that for some in the community, really for all at some points in time, it's not safe for us to be the leaders on that conversation. There yeah. are people out there who won't respond kindly to someone like me having a conversation about my humanity with them. That's the space where allies really have to lead, where yeah. they have to be willing to have tough and courageous conversations with the people that they love. Because again, 
they have a, a level of safety with that person or, or a level of privilege in that moment that people in the LGBTQ community don't have. And so they've got to put that privilege, that safety on the line in order to have those tough conversations. Yeah. Brandon, what does Pride Month mean to you? Oh, gosh, Pride is so many things. But I like to start where Pride began, which is as a protest. Pride was birthed from the Stonewall Riots, which were a protest against police injustice, very specifically against a Black lesbian woman at the Stonewall Inn. And the community had had enough of the raids, of the bullying, of the harassment, of the violence. And so they fought back. And that birthed the Pride movement. So I like to remind myself that while Pride is a, a celebration, it's it's a party for one another. It's also a protest. Uh, it is rooted in a fight against injustice. It is grounded in this defiant joy, this resistant celebration of who we are, this audacious authenticity that commands respect and dignity and inclusion. It is a reminder of all the work we have left to do and all of the things we've already been able to accomplish. It's an opportunity for us to showcase the best of who we are. It's a moment for us to welcome people in and so they can see us as human first. Pride is a lot of things for a lot of people, but I hope that at the end of the day, it continues to be a rallying cry against injustice, not just against LGBTQ people, but but again, a, a rallying cry against injustice in general and a reminder that all of our fates are linked, that that there can be no liberation for one group if there is not liberation for all. Very well said. When you think about the progress that has been made, where do you say, all right, if we could get this far, I know we can get where? So where do you see, let's say, the next five to 10 years? What are some of the areas that we really need to work on and, and make progress? Well, I think we can get to a place where all people are celebrated, all people are respected, where we can you know, really realize that multi-generational, multi-racial, multi-demographic democracy that is possible. It's the thing that the power structures right now are afraid of, this collective power that we have. But it's also the most beautiful vision of the future, one where we can all live side by side and learn to love and appreciate one another. I, I really do think that's possible. And the reason I think that's possible is because when you think about what's been possible in the LGBTQ civil rights movement and really in civil rights movements across time, it's very rarely been about an and or an or on a page of policy somewhere. It has been about people telling their stories. That's been what has shifted social movements throughout time. It's moments like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech that opened people's minds for the first time. It's people standing on the steps of the U.S. Supreme Court declaring that love is love. It's, it's those moments of humanity. It's when you realize that Behind the political rhetoric and the fights that we're waging are people that you love and care about. They're your neighbors, they're your family members, they're your friends, they're your doctors. Uh, and and when you can humanize it in that way and see these issues as, as people issues, as human issues, um, you're able to move past some of that hostile and divisive rhetoric. So I know it may sound optimistic. It may sound pie in the sky. And and five years is, is probably a little optimistic for us to get to this sort of utopian society I'm describing. But I think we can continue to make progress on equality. I think we can make real progress on educational environments, for instance, that 
see LGBTQ people celebrated and affirmed alongside everyone else instead of used as a scapegoat. I think we can see a society that that understands the value of transgender Americans instead of using them as a political lightning rod. I think we can move forward on passing comprehensive non-discrimination policy on a federal level so that you know it's not just the the court cases that are dangling by a thread, but that these things are codified. I think all of those things are possible in the future, if not the near future. It's just going to take a lot of work from all of us to get there. So you get to work on these challenges every day. And uh, I know not every day ends the same way, nor does it end the way it began with necessarily the same optimism or pessimism. But Mm -hmm. you strike me as a fairly optimistic person. I'm sure you approach your work every day feeling like I'm going to get up today and I'm going to make some change. How does a day in your life go at work? What is it that you're working on specifically? And how do you go about trying to move that needle just a little bit every day? Yeah, it's, you know, every day is different. Certainly days when the Supreme Court is releasing decisions are a three or four coffee in the morning day, whereas some other days might be a one coffee in the morning day. But people ask me all the time, what does being a press secretary really mean? What is what is your job every day? And I tell them that I have the distinct pleasure of lifting the stories of LGBTQ people and their allies. I have the distinct pleasure of helping to, to interface with the press, helping to create digital ad content, social media content, get videos recorded in the hopes that our stories are centered when we're at the table. Anytime something is impacting LGBTQ people, we want LGBTQ voices to be at the table and we want them to be treated with dignity and respect at the same time. So an average day looks to me like in taking media requests, making sure they get to the right people with the right stories in time so that we can tell a really beautiful and rich picture of who we are. It's about you know reaching out to people in the community and, and figuring out what stories proactively we can be sharing. And it's also about working internally with our team to figure out what is our strategy? What stories are we telling when we see really bad policies like don't say LGBTQ, or we see policies around trying to ban transgender teenagers from playing soccer with their friends? When we see these policies moving, part of our work and and my work is to humanize them. It's to put a face behind the policy language. It's It's to combat misinformation and confirmation bias by showing the faces of people who will be directly impacted. And so a lot of my work is around strategy internally, talking with our team about lining things up just right. So if we've got an email going out to our supporters and and we've got phone call that's an elections meeting of the mind, that we've got social media content that matches that. Or if we know there's a, a big moment, a showdown coming in the legislature, that we're gathering the right people to be able to be in the room to to share their lived experiences, to put their words on the record to then record a quick video for us so we can share it out with the world. My job is to help make sure that LGBTQ and allied stories are told in Florida, that they're told beyond uh, our state's boundaries, and, and ultimately that every time LGBTQ people are at the table or worse on the menu, that our voices are being heard. Well, you know, we've had a recent Supreme Court opinion handed down that has overturned Roe v. Wade. And uh, I would suspect that members of your community are thinking about the challenges that may pretend as a result of that. 
how have you all made that connection and, and what concerns do you see potentially from it? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I want to start by acknowledging that the LGBTQ community is is large. It's a big umbrella. And many people underneath that umbrella are directly impacted by reproductive freedom. There are lots of people who can get pregnant that identify as LGBTQ. And for that reason, I think it's important for us to sit with the understanding that the, the Dobbs v. Jackson decision, the decision that overturned Roe v. Wade, has a direct impact on LGBTQ people. I've been urging my colleagues and members of the community not to leap to, wow, we could be next, because we are right now. This, is, this attack on reproductive freedom, on sexual autonomy, is an attack on us too, is an attack on LGBTQ people. Equality Florida has been a, a pro-choice organization since its founding in 1997, and that's because we have firmly believed that the rights to sexual autonomy and reproductive freedom mean for everybody, not just one particular group of people, not just one person, but for everyone. And that includes people of LGBTQ identity as well. And then, of course, you know, there there are ripple effects from these things. The Dobbs v. Jackson case was not specifically about abortion access as much as it was about a right to privacy that is guaranteed in the Constitution and has been Supreme Court precedent for almost 50 years. So the question becomes, you know, if that right to privacy no longer exists, if the Supreme Court has dissolved it, what could possibly be next? And you don't have to look any further than Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion um, to know just where the court may take these things. He said that he'd like to see them revisit rulings that granted you know, a right to contraception. Uh, he'd like to see revisit of rulings like Obergefell that, that granted marriage equality. He'd like to see a revisit to um, you know, the Lawrence case, which which ended the criminalization of, of homosexuality in the country at large. So these things have broad and sweeping impacts, again, because it's not localized to just whether or not someone has access to an abortion, but it is about freedom of privacy. It is about sexual autonomy. And again, you know, our job as a, as a civil rights organization is fighting for full equality for all people, who's fighting for all civil rights for all people, that sexual autonomy is at the core of that. We know very well what it feels like for right-wing extremists to try to impose their beliefs of what sexuality should be onto our community. And for that reason, we have a fight in common with those who are, are trying to secure their sexual autonomy, their reproductive freedom, even if that means they're cisgender and heterosexual. Yeah. I kind of feel that we're going to have to encourage our legislatures to act in ways that are protecting these rights because the courts are uh, are no longer no longer an institution that we can sort of depend on right now um, and that's going to be even more important than i think and you can tell me what you feel of course more important that we have these conversations and that we get to know each other that we bridge uh, divides with uh, people like my guest that we talked about a little bit ago, because there has to we have to be able to get to a point where we understand what you were saying that the government should protect everyone's rights, mm -hmm. and and that if that can't be done through the courts, then it will have to be done through legislation, which of course is even more difficult when people don't understand each other. So, it is. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you called that out because it's always been Equality Florida's firm belief that 
legislatures matter, that state and local governments matter. That's why our executive director has remained laser focused on what's happening here in the state. I'm sure she could have gone off and looked for for national opportunities. But when she's asked about national work and state work, she likes to remind people that state work is really important. And I think that's been underscored for us really in the last week that our work to ensure we have representation on city councils, on county commissions, on school boards, uh, and in state legislative bodies, that work is critically important. And that's largely how we've gotten where we are today, that folks on the right have made huge investments in winning state and local races over the last 50 years. Uh, they understood that in order to, to have their values at the forefront, they were going to have to win elections and not just win presidential elections, but win up and down the ballot. And so we're called upon to mobilize our communities in the same way. If if you believe that this should be a country that is inclusive of all people, if you believe that our states should protect and respect every single person, that they should safeguard the civil liberties of people instead of eroding them and dissolving them, then you've got to get engaged throughout the democratic process. It can't just be about once every four years showing up to the ballot box to vote for someone at the top of the ticket. It's got to be every election. And it's got to be outside of that as well. It's got to be showing up to local government meetings, city commission meetings, county commission meetings. It's got to be showing up to your state lawmakers' offices, phone banking, sending emails, knocking doors. Democracy is a full-time project. It's not you're a participant on election day and then a spectator the rest of the year. You've got to be engaged throughout the entire process. And my hope is that we see a new and deeper level of engagement with constituents and voters across the country, and especially here in the state of Florida, because our impact has to be felt on a state and local level right now. Yeah. Well, we're getting to the end of our interview, Brandon, and uh, I want to just conclude with maybe one additional question that just focuses on how we bridge. Again, I want to go back to the conversation that we were having a bit more, a bit earlier about how do we make this connection? Where do we find the courage to have these conversations? And can you give us just maybe one or two thoughts about how we have these conversations and what each of us can do in our own little way to try to move the needle forward? Yes, I think there are two things we can do. And I, I start from this place. Uh, Nadine, our, our executive director, often says that when we continue to engage with people, even when we disagree with them, we get locked in this back and forth. To some degree, we're engaging with them because we still believe in them, that we love and care for them. If we stop engaging with them, if we just ignore them, that's probably a sign that that's not an opinion that we necessarily value. That's not a perspective that that holds value for us. And so I think about all the people that I haven't given up on, that fundamentally disagree with me. My dad is a, a great example about of, of that. And the reason that I keep going back to have these conversations with him, the reason that we stay in communication is because I love him and I care for him. And I know that he loves and cares for me too. And for that reason, I believe that we can get where we're going together. It's going to take work, but I think we can get there. So there's two things that I would challenge people to do. The first one is to be courageous learners. A lot of what we're seeing across the country, and, and really especially here in the state of Florida, as it relates to anti-LGBTQ animus, as it relates specifically to anti-trans legislation and policy, they're built on misinformation. They're built on misrepresentations and mischaracterizations about 
who people are, what their lived experiences are. And they're also built with an understanding that people are afraid to ask uncomfortable questions. They're afraid of things that they don't understand. They don't want to offend someone. It stresses them out that progress has been made and there's new terminology and there are new people that they have to to learn about. And so these right-wing extremist actors prey on that. And they pull at those threads and they use that to divide us. And the way to combat that is, is, as I said, to be courageous learners, to ask questions, to reach out. If if you don't know a trans person, if you've never met a transgender person or begun to understand their lived experiences, that's a challenge for you to, to reach out, to expand your circle of friends, your networks, to, to get to know people. If you find yourself surrounded by the same perspectives, people who are just confirming your worldview. You're stuck in that little ecosystem that tells you that you're the smartest person on earth and everything you say is correct. Then it's time to push those boundaries. It's time to to shatter those expectations and grow outside of your comfort zone. When we are courageous learners, we dare ourselves to see the world through new lenses. And that changes what's possible together. So that's the first thing I would challenge people to do is to be courageous learners. If there's something that gives you that deep sense of discomfort that makes you nervous or makes you scared, you should be asking questions about it. You should be trying to understand someone else's lived experience. And then the second thing that that I already sort of mentioned is put your privilege on the line. There are spaces that you move in, tables that you sit at that marginalized people are not given an opportunity to be in. And and it requires you challenging the status quo and the power structures in those spaces if we're ever going to make change. I think often about how many times I'm in a space that is not inclusive of transgender people. Uh, I think often about how many times my voice is relied upon and leaned upon because I am a cisgender man. uh, And that gives me some maybe undue credibility at the table that that people will look to my opinion and and maybe not someone else's. And so I have to use those opportunities to agitate the status quo. I've got to pass the microphone when I can. I've got to invite someone to come with me if it's an opportunity to sit at that table. And if it's a table that's not welcoming and inclusive of people, then I have to challenge that mindset. I have to ask people why. I've got to push them beyond their boundaries, challenge them to be courageously curious about the world. So those are the two things I think that individuals can be doing right now. Being courageously curious yourself, courageous learners, reaching outside of your comfort zone, and then taking that newfound excitement for learning and pushing the boundary and bringing it into spaces that maybe are not open and inclusive of all people, putting that privilege on the line to challenge others around you and say, we can we can be more open-minded than this. We can do better than this. We can move toward a more inclusive society that that welcomes everyone, that understands that everyone has value, protects them, respects them. We can only do it together. So I'm hopeful that those who are listening take that as my personal challenge for, for Pride Month and then beyond. Pride Month is just one month out of the year, but the LGBTQ community needs our allies in this fight all 365 days. I promised that that would be my last question, but I do have one additional question for you. And it is, there is a member of the LGBTQ community somewhere who is living, as we might say, a double life. They are, their orientation is what it is, but they're not living that way. They're not, quote, out, so to speak. And I can't imagine how difficult it must be to live that way. How do you encourage them? What do you say to them? Not 
of course, everyone has to decide on their own terms and in their own times to live who they live their best selves, as we might say, or to live who they as who they are. But what do you say to a person right now who's living, I would say, with that misery? Oh, gosh. Um, You know, first and foremost, I just want to encourage people who maybe don't feel like it's safe yet to to share that part of yourself with the world that you have as much time as you need. Yeah. No one no one is rushing you. You you when you come out of the closet are welcoming people to share in a piece of you that is deeply personal. It's it's shaped everything around you from before you even understood that's what it was. And that invitation can only be extended by you. And also know that that coming out is not a one one shot process. It happens all the time. If you met me and you're you're hearing me now, I think you can tell that I'm pretty out and proud about who I am. But there are still spaces in which I have to share bits of myself that with people that I I've not known before in spaces that have not moved in before. So know that it's it's not just a, a one shot process. And also you get to decide when you're ready to do that, when you're ready to extend that invitation to others. But in the meantime, I also want you to know how deeply loved and appreciated you are exactly as you are. There is a whole community of people out here who love you, who value you, who know your worth in this world and are here and waiting with open arms to celebrate you, even if it means you're not ready to have that conversation with maybe family members or friends or coworkers. Know that there is an entire community of people gathered around you with their arms around you, ready to protect you, ready to respect you, ready to treat you with love and appreciation. And then when you're ready, when you've decided that it's it's safe, if you decide that it's safe to share and invite other people into that world with you, know that you also have that community standing at your back, ready to support you through that process as well. Well, Brandon, thank you so much. You've been listening to Brandon Wolf, who is the press secretary for the Equality Florida organization. And we've been talking with him about a myriad of issues affecting the LGBT community and Pride Month. And I have to tell you, I hope you'll appreciate this. I know you're doing great work in Florida, but I think there is a national platform for you somewhere, uh, someday when you're ready for it. I know it's ready for you now. I don't mean to to frighten your your boss. (laughs) Anyway, I'm sure I just did. But she probably knows, too, just how incredibly talented you are and what a great asset you would be to uh, this nation working as you do in Florida, but on a national level. So I just wanted to mention that. Thank you. I appreciate that. And to all of our listeners, I want to thank you for tuning in. As you know, you can find the Heart of Giving podcast on all major podcast platforms. I hope you'll subscribe. And if you choose to make a donation, and I hope you do, we can certainly use them. Please go to give.org and make a donation to the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. We use those resources to not only produce this podcast, but to also evaluate the many charities that we do and offer other means and tools to help donors make impactful gifts. So please uh, go to give.org. And you'll also find a a variety of information that you can use while you make that gift. 
hopefully we'll see you back here next week for another edition of the Heart of Giving podcast. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.